Caribbean Heritage Month in the United States, and it is hashtag Read Caribbean on social media. So I am going to send warm hugs to Cindy Allman. You can follow her on IG at Book of Sins. That's Book of C I N Z. And you know, while you're at it, why don't you follow me on IG at Rhythm.Writer, where I've been contributing to the hashtag Read Caribbean experience for the month by reading the first page of some of my favorite Caribbean texts. So go on and take care of that business and let's get into this episode because this is a new season. This is season four of For Posterity and it begins with one of my literary heroes and someone I can now call a friend novelist, writer, wife, mother, and daughter of Haiti. Yes, I am talking about Edwidge Danticat. In Edwidge's honor, but really for your sake as a listener, I suppose, I will begin this episode by situating us with some historical context. So if this were a nine-second history lesson, I would say this. Haiti is the first black republic. In 1804, as a result of a successful revolution, Haiti became the first independent Caribbean state. But not enough people know that glorious fact. What people do seem to know about Haiti is what is splashed across headlines. And that information can be so limiting, if not damning. Take, for example, these first few sentences of a March 2021 Reuters article, where it says, quote, Kidnappings and murders in the poorest country in the Americas have surged over the past year as gangs have gained power amid a deepening economic political crisis. End quote. Or take this May 2021 news brief from Jamaica's Gleaner newspaper where it says, quote, the Portland police seized roughly 7,412 pounds of ganja, valued at $17 million Jamaican, at a beach at Bryan's Bay. Acting on information, the cops swooped down on the location and found the compressed ganja wrapped in parcels, apparently being prepared for export. The police believe that the drug was to be transported to Haiti by boat as part of the drugs for guns trade between Jamaican fishermen and their counterparts in Haiti. End quote. And there's also this quote from the Brookings Institution from January 2010, just days after the 7.0 magnitude earthquake impacted and killed millions. Staffer Rebecca Winthrop reported the following, quote, In relative terms, the international community responds fairly well to humanitarian emergencies caused by natural disasters once the disaster has occurred. However, the international community performs quite poorly in helping countries prepare for those disasters and implement strategies to minimize death and destruction. End quote. Well, if you know the long history then the reason why Haiti is deemed the poorest country in the Americas 
and the reason why there is a ganja for drugs trade, and the reason why Haiti was, quote, underprepared for disaster, well, that all becomes clear. So let me explain that term that Winthrop used, that term international community. When Winthrop said those two words together, what she was doing was lumping colonizing and neo-colonizing countries together, which is to say that the same nations that colonized and underdeveloped Haiti and the rest of the Caribbean are the same nations that swoop in today to save the very same people, flora and fauna, that they exploited and oppressed in the past. Arguably, many of today's realities are spawned from the same history. So for me, if these are the stories that are going to be printed in our newspapers, these stories about ganja for guns and Haiti being the most impoverished country in the Americas, well, then we must know the counter story. Hell, we must know the backstory for why this all is. Because, as you know from fairy tales and from their prequels, there's always a backstory. So let's jump into this one. This story begins a long, long time ago in the days of the Taino and Arawak people. The indigenous were a peaceful lot and they called their land Aiti, meaning land of high mountains. One day, these people found a ragged crew upon their shores. And from that point forward, the history has been told by one narrator and one narrator only. You know how this part goes. Christopher Columbus arrived in 1492, claiming all he could see as the possessions of Spain. The next part of the story is also known, but it is historically downplayed. As the indigenous populations died of disease and overwork, in 1503, the first enslaved Africans were imported to the West and arrived in what Columbus had renamed Hispaniola. Between 1664 and 1697, the French claimed Western Hispaniola and renamed their newly possessed land Saint-Domingue. The exploitation of indigenous and African laborers benefited France greatly. Saint-Domingue became France's most profitable colony in the Western Hemisphere. Did you know that slave labor supplied sugar, rum, and coffee for all of Europe? This slave labor took place in Saint-Domingue, in present-day Haiti. Well, American history classes, they teach us things. They teach us all about the defeat of the British that led to America's independence on July 4th, 1776. But it does not teach about Haitian history. And French history classes teach students about how the French people revolted from 1789 into 1792 for want of rights, equality, and liberty, and an end to the monarchy. But they don't teach about Haitian history. How many French or American students learn about Haiti's revolution from 1791 to 1803? You know, this multi-year revolt was catalyzed by an African ceremony it saw the rise of General Toussaint Louverture, and it saw the desperation of Napoleon Bonaparte. And it certainly saw the greedy luck of Thomas Jefferson, who bought the Louisiana Territory for only three cents per acre, all because Bonaparte was trying to get rid of it. And ultimately, it saw 
the rise of Jean-Jacques Dessalines as emperor of Haiti, the first black republic on January 1st, 1804. Now listen carefully, because this next part of the history, it explains much of what occupies contemporary news headlines about Haiti. In 1806, this is now two years after Haiti or Haiti successfully rebelled and successfully threw off the colonial yoke. In 1806, the United States placed a trade embargo on Haiti, which meant that the U.S. joined Spain and France in boycotting trade with the Haitian Republic. Without any nation to trade goods with, Haiti's economy could not grow. The three embargoes crippled Haiti's economic development. Notably, the United States' trade ban was put in place not only as a show of solidarity with Europe, but as a warning to American slaves. If you rebel, you will suffer the same economic fate. Haiti was colonially free, but economically paralyzed. Then, after about 20 years, in 1825, France added insult to injury by formally recognizing Haiti's independence, then turning around and demanding 150 million francs in reparations for profits that France lost due to the revolution. Believe it? Yeah, it's wild, I know. After another 40 years, the United States president, Abraham Lincoln, at the time, he finally officially recognized Haiti and opened up the first U.S. trade with the Haitian Republic in 1863, some 60 years after Haiti declared itself independent. Yeah, so what I hope to to show here is that the histories of France, Spain, England, and the United States are all intertwined. And since 1804, they have both individually and collectively thwarted Haiti's economic progress as a way of punishing the first black republic for its successful revolution. Much of the economic stagnation today is still a direct result of that history of economic strangulation. This is the story that is less known because for too long, the recorded history has been sorely limited to and by the global North. Thankfully though, we have more outlets than big media controlling the narrative and school textbooks too. Haitian historians, activists, reporters, critics, and writers are telling their stories. So it's our obligation to hear them, to read them. And especially this month when we think about Read Caribbean. I hope that this history lesson, which was a bit longer than nine seconds, has grounded you with enough historical context so that you can become more curious to know more about Haiti, but also hopefully it's given you enough of a grounding so that you can better understand the kinds of memories that haunt Edwidge Danticat's writing and haunt our conversation for posterity here. So let's get on with this episode because I am deeply honored deeply honored to have as my guest the acclaimed and gifted writer Edwidge Danticat. She was born in Haiti's capital city of Port-au-Prince in 1969 
and lived in Haiti until she migrated to Brooklyn, New York when she was 12. Her 1994 debut novel, Breath, Eyes, Memory, tells through the space of fiction, which is always informed by life experiences, it tells her Haitian story. Indeed, each of Danticat's novels, short stories, children's picture books, essays, and YA fiction tells a Haitian story. Importantly, though, her writing gives readers a feminine consideration of Haiti. With a great focus on 20th century and now 21st century history, Danticat's readers learn about the impact of Haitian father-son dictators Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier, whose combined rule lasted from 1957 to 1986, and whose militiamen, known as the Tonton Makut, are said to have killed 300,000 men, women, children, and infants. In her writing, we learn about the emotional effect of Rafael Trujillo's politics. Trujillo was the dictator of the Dominican Republic from 1930 to 1961, and he authorized a border massacre that killed nearly 35,000 Haitians. Through Danticat's empathetic consideration of loss and memory and migration, readers better understand the difference between exile and refugee, the difference between welcomed migrants and unwanted migrants. With more than 20 books to her name and many more short pieces, readers of Danticat's words feel her love of home, love of country, and love of life. Her latest book is a vivid collection of short stories published in 2019 and is titled Everything Inside. With Edwidge Danticat as my guest, we hold space for the past, for history, even as we discuss the now. So we talked about storytelling alongside Black girl motherhood in 2021. We discuss memory and migration. We discuss Haiti and Jamaica and Jamaica Kincaid too. Importantly, as we talk about the heavy topics and the difficult subjects, we also laughed. (laughs) We talk about balancing this life work. So let's get on with it. Here we go. As always, I am the rhythm writer and this is for posterity. And this is for posterity. So happy to have you here. So thank you, Edwidge Danticat, for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as a um, an avid reader of your work, I have to start with a question that probably stems from a response that many of my students have had to your work, which is that there's just no hope in these texts. And I tell them, no guys, there's lots of hope. There's so much hope in these works. Um, so maybe I'll ask you, you know, what does hope mean? And, and how does that figure in for you as a writer, especially a writer who is Haitian? Well, um, I, I get that too, by the way. <laughs> I, get, <laughs> I get it that people would say, you know, like your work is so dark and, and dark in the, this way that we're, you know, we're not supposed to use anymore because of like its um, sort of negative connotation in terms of blackness. But um, but people would say that like your work is dark, and I would to me, you know, and that was like after my first two books, um, and I would, you know, 
for me, it was just, I think the human experience has a lot of suffering in it in general, right? Um, we can't go through life, um, most of us go through life with some, you know, we can't go through life without experiencing some level of suffering. So I was always interested in that. And I think that manifests itself in different ways. You know, even the, the folk tales were told, you know, when we're kids, at least for me, you know, there's, um, there's a, a, a lullaby that we have, um, you know, a Haitian lullaby. It's like, do, do, tipitit mama, do, 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 tipitit mama. Like if you don't eat, like someone translated as if you don't sleep, the lobster will eat you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and, rough. you know, and, and think of the, the grim fairy tales and all right. these stories. I think, I think even these sort of like the oral stories and these other stories, the mythology and everything um, story has to, you know, there's, if there's no conflict in general, there's no story. Right. And so for me, I'm coming from it from that perspective, but also coming from a, a culture, you know, I mean, a world in general now, certainly mm -hmm. um, more than ever, but a, a culture in general, people have struggled with a lot and have had to define their own humanity to others in spite of that suffering. Right. And that so that Haitians, you know, it was, it was the first black republic in the and this it was the first place in the world where enslaved people overcame the people who owned them and created their, you know, their own country, suffered a lot for it after the fact. But that triumph came out of so much suffering, right? And so um, I think when people do ask that question, when they say that, they want a sunny ending. I think for me, also, that's one of the, the things they're like, Oh, at least let it end happily. Right. <laughs> and and I'm thinking, well, life life doesn't always work like that. But I do have to say um, that as I get older, I do I that is in, in part of my consciousness this idea of also engaging hope. Hmm. You know, one of the last lectures Toni Morrison gave, um, and it's online, and it's a wonderful lecture about goodness and the imagination, right? Where she where she was saying that it's, sometimes it's harder to write about goodness or hmm or about joy, or about hope. And, and I also feel like, and maybe after writing all these um, different types of stories and having lived like the different ways, you know, different versions of my life, and I'm 52, and I've been doing this, you know, publishing since I was my 20s. So now I, I feel like I, I do want to engage more in sort of like the positive, like the sort of lighter hmm. side of things. And maybe it's because I have children, you know, right. I have like, and, and I want and and I want to be hopeful for them um, mm. at the same time. But I think we, I think we should read across a whole spectrum for sure. You yeah. know that that our experience um, as the the writer Imani Perry said in Messi last summer, it's not just about pain, but pain is certainly part of it. Right. That was too long. <laughs> no, that was perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> Something you said in there. You said that there are different versions of your life. And, you know, you mentioned when you started writing. So what are these versions of your life? How do you break them up? Well, I mean, I think I, I, I break them up certainly like everybody else with like childhood and a certain, you know, um, hierarchy of experience. But I've also had a, a, a time in my life 
where I was in Haiti with my parents for a little bit. And then when they migrated without them with my aunt and uncle and then moving to New York mm -hmm. and then, you know, and then sort of learning uh, American life, right. you know, and, and my crash course in American history and all of that. And then going to college in a sort of predominantly white space and, and then, you know, writing with all of that, mm. you know, immersed in that. And, mm -hmm. and for me, writing in a way is, is a way of reproducing different versions of myself. I think most writers would say that, that, um, you know, any character you read is some version of, of who we are. You know, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's a funny, you, a funny character, you know, it's like not autobiographically reproduced all the time, right. but there are certainly different versions of like my imagination, of my personality, and and mm. every single character that I've ever written, no matter what their you know age, um, or or gender, or right. you know. And your daughters are teenagers, right? Yeah, up one one preteen, like twelve and sixteen. Yeah. So how have you felt? You said that you've been more aware of hope since having your daughters. How have you infused that into your writing? Any specific moments that you can recall? Well, I feel, you know, I used to, I used to say about myself, and maybe that's agreeing with the question we begin with, that I, I feel like I was kind of like a mass murderer <laughs> in my writing. <laughs> like, I was just kind of like, oh. And I find myself more reluctant now to kind of, um, you know, I try to fight for my characters to mm. like, to, 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 to live another day, let's say. Okay. And, um, and I think, and, and I, I think that has to do with actually um, wanting like people, you know, and people you love to have a future. Right. Mm. And also not, and also understanding in a way that you don't, when you're really, really young mortality, you know, um, and now, you know, in the, the time since I started writing to now, both my parents have passed away, um, you know, and certainly in this recent period, some, you know, some of their friends have passed away to see that, uh, to have experienced all of those things, I think, um, make you want to sort of like, see like, okay, what's the other side of all that, right? right? right. And, and how do we survive all of that, which is what I think also just the fact that you and I are here means that our ancestors had that in them. Yes. Right. Like they fought to stay alive so yeah. that we could be here. And per perhaps that's like the dream, like they dreamed of a future in which some, you know, other generations existed. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that's, you know, the, you know, get to a certain age and you start thinking more and more about those things. And, and certainly for me in the work, um, you know, and everything inside, and I'm really drawn to multiple narratives, and part of it is my impatience in a way, <laughs> but, but I can see, you know, I, and one story called Sunrise Sunset, where it was a, a mother and her daughter, it's kind of like these three generations in one space, yeah. and just to see them wrestling it out, but, but, you know, there's a scene in that where I'm just like, yeah, that has to, you know, that generation has to survive, <laughs> and, true. Yeah. And so for me, that's sort of, that's part of my more looking forward and, um, and sort of planting more than uprooting mm. for, the, for the characters in my, in my work.
Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Sunrise Sunset. That's certainly a story about memory, right? And the, the slipperiness of it um, and this awareness that we can lose it at almost any moment, right? So certainly we think about those with Alzheimer's and dementia as, as losing it in a kind of medical way. But of course, one could bump their head tomorrow and not have it anymore. Um, of course, there's this idea of silences and the stories we don't tell to our family members. Um, how much does memory, I guess, figure when you're writing? What is it that you want your daughters to remember as they read your works? Well, you know, my first book was called Breath, Eyes, Memory. So yeah, <laughs> memory is important to you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of obsessed with memory. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that has to do with migration because I, when, when we migrate, really, that's the primary thing we take with us are, are our memories. And, um, and this notion of passing on, passing on ancestral knowledge that, that when you're in the same place where you were born and you're, you grow up and become an adult and grow, you know, grow old there, that it's almost in the air, right? It's like mm. you absorb it. But when you're, um, when you're in migration, like when my parents were in New York, they had to really make an effort to try to, for us to know certain things. You know, this was before the internet and all of that. Right. And often what was coming to us, you know, through the air was negativity. You know, what people knew, you know, what, what they knew about Haiti and what they would call us. And so they had to not just pass on knowledge, but also counter negativity. So, um, so memories in a way, and sometimes it was just like about, you know, these the stories that my mother would tell stories about her being a girl, which was, it's always hard to imagine your parents being right. children, but, but she would just like, you know, she was like, one time I went to this beach and I was drowned and these stories like that where she brought, you know, both my parents brought Haiti in the house and when relatives visited and the things they brought us, the foods. So I think all of that was just a, a really sort of lively effort to keep memories alive, right? Mm. To keep the country alive that at that time, my parents didn't feel like they could bring us back to, you know, right. even though when we were coming, they said, you were gonna, we're gonna go back every summer. But five people at that time, you know, my parents, my dad was a cab driver, my mom worked in a factory. And when you don't just go home with your like, beachwear so <laughs> so they just never could save enough for like the planes and all the gifts and everything so we never got to go so they had to kind of bring Haiti to to us mm -hmm. so for me that's that's the, the sort of the power of memory uh, too like that you know and then certain things become certain people in your life when they show up in your two-bedroom apartment in New York doing their visit you know it's right. kind of a living memory mm. you know they kind of represent the place and the stories that you left behind and they're, they're bringing them back. So for my girls, you know, I wanted them, it was important for, for me that they had their own memories of Haiti. So we started going when they were very, very young. Uh, we continue to go. We haven't gone in the last year um, right. or so, but, um, but we've gone back consistently so that they have their own visions, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and it's really powerful to, to when we look back at certain things we've done and then we forget some things that they remember. So, so they have their own relationship with the place and they've, they've sort of created their, their own memories, even though it's not sort of, it, it wouldn't be the same as the kind of memories that I had with sort of, you know, they have bits of things during their visits, 
but it's still theirs. And right. that was very, very important to us that they have their own relationship hmm. with the place that we, um, we come from. Right. When, when returning to Jamaica, a big part of that move for me was that I wanted my daughters to have some of those memories. I wanted them to be able to live an experience um, that I had. And the, the most interesting part, I think, is that in seeing my daughters move through the space of Jamaica, I am able to see Jamaica differently. I'm seeing the space that I, I had preserved, right? I don't even want to say remembered, but the space that I had preserved, and then I can see how they're experiencing the space in a brand new way. And then I see their eyes sparkling with bits of my memory and then their own mm -hmm. experience. Do you see your daughter's um, memories as yours? Are you living alongside them in that way? No, I see it totally as, as theirs because also yeah. their frame of reference is very, very different than mine. Mm -hmm. and, and they're comparing it not just to, to, you know, of course my husband and I would be like, that's where we went to school, that's where we, and at the same time, we're like, oh, it's so much smaller than I remember. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the shrinking building. Sometimes I'm wondering, it's like, does it look small? Yeah, exactly. Does it look small to them? Or, yeah. um, and so we have that, we, you know, because sometimes we'll visit, you know, the, um, my husband, we met in Haiti while he was volunteering in Haiti for a week. He was, you know, teaching at this school that when we go back, the girls are like, oh, this school, like the auditorium at some American public school is, is like bigger than that right. one school. So for them, they're looking at that, you know, I think there are things of that nature, like the frame mm -hmm. of reference is very, very different. But um, I love that they're, that it's theirs, uh, you know, again. And, and so when we, I always wonder, like, I wish I could inhabit their brains and see like, when we say like, this is why I went to school, or they're like pitying us, or they're right. like, yeah. <laughs> exactly, no, that's important. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. So, but yeah, so, but they're always very, but what they love, they also love that the, we love certain things in common. We love the beach, we love grandma's house. We, you know, um, and so we're both, we're all equally, horrified by bucket showers yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too cold <laughs> we, yeah we, we prefer the river and all of that so I mean I think and I feel like it's something that like will never be taken away from them mm. like even if they go back as adults you know that they'll have had that that planting because mm. what happens I think with with um children like mine or children like yours is that they they might get you know to go to other you know like they might get to go to Europe they might get to go to Paris they might get to go to these other places and I just never wanted that like my place of birth not to be part of that configuration right 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 and so there's a part of me that feels like even if that stands alongside like even if that's on the list of a bunch of places you've been mm -hmm. that it's at least there right mm. And so, and thankfully they've had, you know, they've had a range of experiences there right. that, you know, that they, that, that I hope will carry forward. That also, that they get a sense of the complexity of the place. For right? sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, I have a question, I guess, about identity. And I think this still connects here. In different contexts, I've seen your national identity or identities listed as 
Haitian living in America or Haitian in Miami. I've seen Haitian and American. How do you see yourself? And then also, do your daughters see themselves as Haitian? Well, I think it's like based on the context. Like, okay. so my, my daughter, when she starts a new school, she, she'll say, there are two other Haitian girls there. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so they'll say, you know, my daughter, one of her cousins had given her a bracelet with like a, a, a shape of like a map of Haiti. And she said, oh, you know, uh, this, this girl who's also Haitian, recognize my bracelet, mm -hmm. you know, so I think, um, so, and, but in a place like Miami, that's, that's, you know, everybody's from, from right. somewhere else right. here. And, and there's sort of that, um, so they've, they, they'll, they'll identify in that context, mm -hmm. you know, and, but I think there's also, they'll, um, when they fill out the forms, of course, they're like black African-American or whatever the, the, the form says, they'll go, They'll mm -hmm. go with the whatever is closest to, to you know, to, they'll they'll do you know they're black they know they're yeah. black, or uh, from the they, you know they've heard enough that we're from the first black republic. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a nice prideful so, statement. Uh, <laughs> so they're so they know they you know, I, I'm actually you know until you said it, mm. I've kind of taken for granted how how much they say they're Haitian in certain contexts, mm. like you know, or they'll say you know, um, they'll recognize some, some other kid's name and they'll say, oh, he's also Haitian. Like, right. sort of like, it's very, it, that's very easy. But I, we've not had that conversation okay. like, what are you? Right. Um, um, us beyond like, you know, beyond you're a black girl. We've mm -hmm. not had past like specifically, mm -hmm. what are you? But it's also been interesting to see these things emerge, right? Like when, um, at what moment, um, kids go from, from, you know, they start seeing, but it, but I think, especially in recent years though, mm. um, our kids have not had those protections for long because right, of true. the police killings or George Floyd every other week, you know, the black girls being wrestled to the ground by police mm. officers. And so it's not been, you can't, you can't, um, it's been hard to shield. You, you really have to prepare your children very early on. Mm -hmm. for like what to expect out there no it's intense um and there there really aren't the shelters that we want there to be the best we can do is instill confidence i think right absolutely absolutely yeah. and i think it's very tricky uh there's you know every kind of parenting has its particular challenges but i find that parenting black girls Mm -hmm. And you don't want to like do that. I don't want to do the thing my parents, like my mother did when I showed my elbow, you know, <laughs> you, know, you, know I'm, you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to be like shaming as they would say, but you right. also have to, you know, I've had, I've found myself like so often biting my tongue, mm. like trying not to explain, you know, cause they're like, so-and-so is also wearing that skirt, but to be thinking like, Black girls are hypersexualized. Yeah. They're not going to see you in that skirt the same way they see this other girl right. in that skirt. And so that's a that's like a really uh, tough conversation. It's yeah. really hard. It's it's almost as if the more awareness we have, the more difficult it becomes um, because you want to protect them from all of these different things, and you don't know how. Um, 
And I, I feel all of those same struggles of biting the tongue and awareness and this almost double consciousness of, of, of being in my own mind as a mother and then stepping into my daughter's mind and saying, don't stifle, don't stifle. Yes. Like just yeah. let her be, she'll figure it out. Trust that she can handle this. It's, it's always so much. Yeah. I think that's so important what you say with the don't stifle, because that's the key. Like you don't, you know, there's a part of you, like today, you don't want to crush your child's spirit. Yeah. yeah. Yet you also want them to be, you also want them to recognize that, that thing, whatever it is when it comes, mm -hmm. because you don't know when it will come, No. you know, and you're not always going to be there. So part of you is like, you want them to be free within themselves and then at the same time you want them to be prepared so that like when they have like a particular kind of encounter it just won't devastate them. exactly so. exactly and and i think i think i've been aware of this since pregnancy and that's because it was when i was pregnant that i remember rereading jamaica kincaid's annie john I listen, I think that book ruined my whole entire mind. Because there was something about the circling hand. And I thought mm. that little moment could do so much. If, if that if, if one is to say that that is the moment that breaks Annie John, right? That makes her say, oh my goodness, mommy doesn't love me as much as she might love daddy or whatever the thing is that, you know, we're still not really sure happens in her head. Mm -hmm. Can that really happen, right? And so, of course, when I read your works and the mother and daughter relationships, I think about this and I think, what is the amount of distance that's safe? We know what happens in breath, eyes, memory. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's too much, right? We don't want that kind of yeah. um, intensity yeah. between mother and daughter. Um, we know what happens in some of the stories in Crit Crack. Um, you know, how much do we say? How many stories do we tell? And is storytelling perhaps the safest way to prepare our girls, right? Is it a way that we can kind of share yeah. without telling them what to do and saying, oh, here's a story. Let me create a fiction that I can tell my daughters and then they can uh -huh. hear this, this story and they'll ease into it. But if I say, mommy says, don't do this, yeah. you know? Um, so I appreciate your work and I appreciate how fiction really does create these spaces of intense fear on the one hand um, as a mother, but then it creates an opportunity for open dialogue about possibilities in, in life. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that you brought up Jamaica Kincaid in the sense that like, I think every Caribbean girl child or female identified person yes. will will go like you read girl and you're like oh my that's like all our mothers yes right and then at some on some level you're just like i'm never gonna do that but then sometimes it sneaks out <laughs> <laughs> not all of it no but no not some, all <laughs> but it's some hard. of it but yeah, but I mean, I think that's the power of story too, that she managed, you know, Jamaica Kincaid managed and that really like prose poem verse to just kind of like, not only capture this sort of constant litany mm. when you're growing up and, but also like how it continues to play in your mind. Right. And I remember I always, you know, I always, and there's, I think it's in Annie John, um, 
where there's that moment suddenly you go and I went through that and I, and I was the first time in, in, in her work that I started to find where you go from being sort of like that barefoot little girl who's flying kites with your cousins right. and your brothers to, to suddenly, and it doesn't even have to, to do with your period often, mm -hmm. but it's like there's a moment when you come off the roof and the flying kites and you have to put on shoes after yes, school yes. <laughs> and, and like suddenly be a lady. Right, you know? childhood is over. Yeah, and then suddenly like, you know, in our culture, like you have to kiss everybody you know, like you walk in a room, it's like there's 20 adults, you, like 20, you kiss 20 people. And then I just remember being the moment when I was scolded for just like kissing the men all of a sudden, like mm -hmm. you had to kind of like, and I was like, nobody told me, you know, <laughs> and it's just so abrupt, you know. Right. Um, and so, I mean, there are things that, that she just really captures mm -hmm. that, you just knew, I mean, I think that's also the power of like recognizing yourself in a piece of literature that, that, that I, that, you know, she did for me in terms of like defining girlhood. Yeah, know. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so in thinking about the works that you write, the, the children's literature, the YA, the adult texts from all of these readers or for many of these readers, you become their first introduction to Haiti. Um, does that weigh on you in any way when you're writing? Do you think about that aspect that some people are completely unaware of this, this country, its history? Do you put pressure on yourself to, to give context and to be a teacher in that regard? No, not so much um, because I've always accompanied that work for, with like, other sort of outward works like editing and um, you know writing introductions, some translations, things of that nature, which I think is much more important in terms of introducing like different types of writing from where I'm from. Hmm. But I, I, you know, I, I think it is wonderful when people were like, I've met people who said, I read your book and I end up going to Haiti and end up, yeah. you know, or I read your book and I ended up um, reading other writers. For me, that's the best when people, you know, when it's like when it leads them to other stories. Mm -hmm. um, what's scary about it is what I encountered, you know, when my, when Breath Eyes Memory first came out. And I think I am read and a lot of people from, you know, different marginalized, you know, like groups or a group, group of people that folks don't know about, they'll read your, I mean, even from Alice Walker mm -hmm. to Amy Tan, to especially it seems to happen more to women, that they'll, mm -hmm. they'll read your book like sociology, you know, anthropology. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so if something, so when Breath Eyes Memory is published, I encountered this thing where people were like, oh, is that, you know, what, that, what happens to the character, you know, the young woman there, does that happen to all Haitian girls? Okay. Of course not, you know, but I mean, like, that's why it says novel on the cover, but, <laughs> but, but because, you know, if people are like, they, if they haven't been exposed to the culture much, right. that you're suddenly kind of like covering all subjects for mm -hmm. them. So that part is a little bit intimidating because of course it makes my people also really angry with me, <laughs> you know, and by people, I mean like the people who are from the culture, they're like, oh my, this, 
you know, and when the book first came out, I would meet women all the time like, oh, these people at work are reading your book and they think this happened to me, okay. you know? And mm. so that's like, there's like this uncomfortable um, space with that. And I think that's, that's a burden on the, on the reader to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, but it ends up being like a community burden Right. If people then see like they, 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 you know, then people from your own culture mm. who you would love to be part of like the community reading the book, but they see it as a kind of um, indictment of them because their experience, which could be so very different from these characters, mm -hmm. are just like folded in together as mm. a, sort of a monolithic experience. Right. So that your work becomes fully representational and that's not fair. And, and it's not just no. me. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's just, um, I've, I think it happens to a lot of people, but that happens, especially if like if it's a first novel and there weren't that many, uh, uh, you know, from Haiti. Um, in a way, like what I had imagined, you know, like was that people would read my book and think, oh, you know, because I grew up in a, a family that was poor, that came from a rural area. There are a lot of us like that, but mm -hmm. of course, it's not the singular experience of Haiti. And um, so I, I thought people would be like, oh, this is kind of, you know, this is, you know, at best, like her life, but it wasn't right. even her life. Um, but there were a lot, there are a lot of layers missed, I think, when, mm. with that kind of reading, which happens still, you know, with, with different writers from different places that people have not uh, heard a lot from, for example. Absolutely. You know, here what we have is a news report. And so the news reports that are coming out are about guns coming in from Haiti. And so Ooh. for many, that is their understanding of who Haitians are. They are the ones who are bringing in the guns into Jamaica, right? There's this, you know, illegal um, situation happening on the, the borders. It's shipments coming in and there's this disdain, anger, hate, right? Because of course, nobody wants guns in their community. Well, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the guns because for folks in Haiti and uh, people in the Haitian diaspora, the guns remain like an extraordinarily puzzling thing for us hmm. because you have um, so many armed groups in Haiti right now. And with the latest weapons, um, and often, you know, that are used by powerful people, including, you know, the government to intimidate and the heads of some of the gangs are, you know, are, are burning down neighborhoods, there are massacres in poor neighborhoods like the neighborhood where I grew up. And so and people are always like, well, where do they get the guns? I mean, I, you know, we sort of generally think it's, it's powerful people who would give them the guns because they don't have just the guns, but the ammunitions and a lot of the guns come through, you know, Miami too. Right, right. So, so I had not heard that, like that, that people were seeing now. I mean, that's next level hmm. horror, horror in a way that not only are there so many guns in Haiti, which is horrifying to people that they're, that it's also being exported. You know, right. I, I didn't know, I wasn't aware of, of that, but I think these multiple narratives are so important. Like I've met, you know, I remember going when my book came out, like I went to some some school and a little girl like said to me, I didn't know Haitians could read. 
like like wow yeah she's like oh my gosh and and she thought it was a a compliment mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's like i didn't know Haitians could read and so it's kind of like you know what Chimamanda and Gozi call that the, that single story yes um and except we have sort of a multiplicity of different single stories none of them all that uh celebratory so for me like nuance is is very important when the earthquake happened, for example, I think I literally think some of the news people like Googled Haitian person. Like, were like you know, I mean, no, I think some I think that's I think generally that's what like they're ex, they're people who if something is happening in the news, yeah. they'll Google some prominent people from that community. So I think so when they called me and I and, and I really was I, I there's a hesitancy in me and sort of like pushing my face forward, mm -hmm. but literally I was um, worried about so many people in my life that mm -hmm. um, some of them ended up, you know, uh, dying in the earthquake, but I was so worried. And I, I, I mean, I'll, so I, so I went on some of the, the channels and I'll tell you this, one of my friends who was living in Carrefour, which was like the epicenter in Leogan, mm -hmm. where my family's originally from was also uh, partly, parts of it were devastated. The only, the houses that ironically remained standing there was my grandmother's house remained standing because it was an old style house. It wow. wasn't a concrete house, it just swayed. So some mm. of them, but then another house, you know, other houses um, crashed. But the, so I think, yeah, so my friend was watching and he said, you know, he had a little bit of, uh, he was able to watch through a phone um, and he said, you know, and he said, oh, when I saw you. So he said he thought this earthquake was a global event. He was in Haiti. Yes, he was in Haiti outside his house, like like his house that was damaged, but not destroyed. And he said he was watching um, hmm. with a bunch of people on this phone and like outside and you know they could they weren't going to sleep and he said and he said i was and he said we were really worried about you all over there wow. we thought and and he said and when i saw you on that program i was like oh they're okay like like to him that was like and it might have been part of like the distortion of the shock but he really thought he thought there would be a tsunami in miami like mm -hmm. he had like i don't know how but he he saw it and he thought and i and i thought oh my goodness here i was like you know, thinking I was worried about them, they were, but they were also worried about us over mm -hmm. here. So, so for me, that that more than anything felt like. And then you also, I think, part of it too was kind of, um, I when I'm asked things like that, often if they like, if they say like, I know so many people in the community, so I'll say you should ask this person right. who is like a, you should ask this one who's a geologist, so you should ask this one. Um, and so, so that also, it's important, I think, to have more than all the different faces. But I was, you know, I was never, I was so happy that I did that, like that first, like that CNN interview, mm -hmm. just because of that experience where my friend was like, oh, we were so glad everybody yeah. was okay over there after we saw that, you know. It shows too the connection, right? How close mm -hmm. these spaces really are, so that it really could yeah. have impacted, um, uh, people in Miami just as yeah. much. Yeah. Oh my Absolutely. goodness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I've always wanted to know what is it that makes you laugh? <laughs> oh, I, 
my children make me laugh. They don't, they don't think they're funny, but they are funny. <laughs> I kind of figured you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> when I think about how people interpret your work or receive your work as heavy. And, and people will say that all the time. They're like, why don't you write funny? I think it's very hard to write it's funny. It's so hard. It's really hard to write funny because there's so like different sense, you know, people have different sense of humor and everything. But um, I, I, I just think without overgeneralizing, there's a tendency, there's a, a kind of um, structure um, and, and an element of Haitian culture that within a tragic event and like give people like maybe three hours, but by the fourth hour, they'll, they'll come up with some kind of joke about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe it's sort of a, a, a survival mechanism, mm -hmm. but there's just, there, there's this, the, the really powerful element, I think, of, of humor yeah. and in the culture and of, you know, of sometimes through song and maybe it's like that's one element of carnival that's also appealing where so people make light of certain things mm -hmm. um, in a way to kind of as a, as a way of, of dealing with them. I've not, you know, I mean, I think I've had moments where I, in my writing, but it's very, I just like, again, it's hard mm -hmm. to, to write funny. But I think um, I, I have I have tried, but maybe people just don't notice. <laughs> I just don't find the humor. <laughs> something about inspection. I wish I could recall exactly what the line was because when I read it, I remember going ha ha, and then mm -hmm. I was with my mom, and the reading you have for the New Yorker magazine, mm -hmm. the same line came, and my mom laughed. And so I said, okay, that's, that's not just me. That's not just me. So there is this funny moment and it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it wouldn't seem so funny in the context of what's happening mm -hmm. in the story, but you chuckle. There's some reason that makes, that makes one chuckle in there. So you do have it in there and I appreciate it because it does give that kind of balance. And, and I guess I want to maybe go right back to that idea of hope, which is kind of where we started. Um, you said that you want to put more hope into your works so that the future generations, your children and, and other future um, generations will, will feel that hope, will want to take that into the future. As a reader of your work, I've always felt the hope. Um, maybe it's that I'm just an extremely hopeful person, but I'm that person who in um, between the pool and the gardenias, I believed the baby was alive. I'm like, that baby is mm. alive. That baby must be alive. And I just told myself that we're going to get that baby and that baby's going to keep on going. And even in everything inside, I, in, 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 which is it? Is it without inspection? Yes. I believed that Arnold was alive too. Mm. I said, he's, he's there. He's okay. Yeah. He's going from, even though that first sentence is so loaded and especially loaded in light of, um, of, of these, these violences against black bodies, right? And when we think about George Floyd and we think about that timestamp, right? On how long that knee was on that neck. And so mm. for him to be falling, right? It took Arnold six and a half seconds to fall 500 feet. Reading that sentence anytime in the last year now strikes differently, right? Knowing how long a knee was on a neck. Yeah. But still I'm reading this and saying, Arnold's okay. Arnold 
wow, Arnold, Arnold is really doing well, even though he's in mm -hmm. that cement mixer. So there's some hope that your pen just puts on that page. Um, how, why, what do we do with that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I've had uh, with Kick Crack, I have been invited to such things as like, you know, lawyers training sessions to, to help lawyers understand how to tell the story of an immigrant person hmm. to a judge that couldn't care less for five minutes. So if, an, if a lawyer has to make a case for asylum for a person, they have a certain amount of time to tell their story, why they're here, why they should stay. And it has to be often, it, it is often very dramatic, but they have mm -hmm. to convey that. So I've been part of sessions where like, we're training lawyers to do that. I've been to um, medical schools where people are, who are studying to be psychiatrists who are like, we're dealing with extremely trauma, you know, people who've been through extreme trauma, sometimes women who come by boat, who've been raped on the boat, who are now, you know, in, in detention and, mm. and then they release them and this person is not there, they're like, has to help them deal with that trauma. So they mm. wanna know how to identify their story, how to get them to tell their story. So I've like, for me, I've seen like, thankfully, the power of like a story at work in the world and i feel like those people who have invited me into those processes have given me a gift in terms of of um, sometimes it could feel very um you know futile what we're doing um but in a way but just following in the tradition of like our ancestors in terms of like the roles of griots the roles of funeral wailers right the roles of someone reciting someone's life in a very you know, public contest of mourning or celebration of the praise song and all of that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's the reason, like for me, that's the, the storytelling is the hope. Like the fact that, especially in those first person types of stories, the fact that a story is told at all is a kind of triumph. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how I come at it. And maybe that's why I don't see as much of sort of the quote unquote darkness, darkness that people keep accusing me of because I felt like it's a miracle that this that story this story got that got out. Yeah. And and I think also the way like Arnold and I and Arnold was inspired by actual people who when I first moved here were working in the top of these buildings and literally falling out of the sky. And they were making, I don't know how much they were making, but they were certainly not making enough to ever see the inside of these million dollar condos that they were mm -hmm. building. Mm -hmm. And so that to me was a, a, a fascinating element of the story. And then going back to all these stories of falls, of flying Africans, of, of these other ways that we find to go on, you know, the story of Makandal, mm -hmm. who was burnt at the stake and just kind of re was reabsorbed in the air as, you know, as you know, as like a flying being, right. uh, these stories that we tell ourselves for continuity. So for me, Arnold didn't die really; like he was going to be alive in some other realm, right? right? And and he was given this opportunity to say goodbye, and and that was just very important. That in a way, his life sort of didn't end when when like 
the rules of this side of things told him that right. it did. There's a spirituality also that goes beyond breath that has also sustained our people, right? Mm -hmm. And and so for me, that's something that was very important to, to maintain in the story. So maybe that's why when I think about, I mean, I, I yeah, for all of the, the, the my characters, like the characters in Crack especially, I think this is kind of like that woman who picks up that the baby out of the street. And I've seen things, I've, I remember, the reason I actually decided to write that story is one time I saw uh, in front of the, near the, the general hospital, a baby who was dead, but had a, it was, the baby had a string on her, both her ears. Mm. So, and so for me, that means, you know, that her ear had been pierced and then someone, because that's what, like, that's what I had when I was a baby, they pierced her ear immediately and put a string to hold the space until you can wear jewelry. Mm -hmm. So I remember for me, when I saw that baby, I thought the string was the detail that absorbed me. I was like, that baby was loved yeah. at least long enough for someone to, to pierce her tiny ears and put a string through it. Mm -hmm. And to, to me, that was also, I mean, I think that's what that character saw too, to be like, you know, that child, was love right was tethered to someone by that yes yeah mm. but yes that 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 is the hope right it is in that storytelling mm. and it's in that connection right that you see someone out of outside of the general hospital and you have this connection with that someone that you've never met before that there's something in the air that tethers the two people so that it has to come out in another way from you that you've absorbed it. And then it's now reflected into the, the works that you write, the reader absorbs it, and it just continues in all of these different cycles. Um, so I'm glad we're in the kind of crit crack space. Um, and I kind of want to maybe bookend it with the stories of everything inside to kind of think about the idea of the short story cycle. Um, do you engage with the cycle for these reasons, right? For the, the fact that nothing is ever lost, that we're all really just new versions to kind of go back to what you said before, that there are different versions of your life, that there are these multiple or multiplicities of, of existence. There are little bits of, of you in me and him in her and all of that. Um, why the short story cycle or why the short story collection, whichever? Well, you know, I'm, I always keep telling myself I'm done with what the, you know, like the short story cycle or like the connected stories. I was like, you know, and I'm starting, I just started, I mean, I started actually two years ago, but it's kind of dragged up like trying to write a novel in a linear way. And, and, um, and so, because I think the story cycle is, it's, it's just kind of, I feel like my, imagination is crowded in that sense and there's always like these characters going me now me now me. <laughs> <laughs> and so i kind of want to listen um to all of them but the short story itself is a form that i love and and i think in part of it is because you can hold the whole thing in your mind mm. and um and then just have all these different people come through <laughs> you know i think of it as I often think of it as like a, a being like in a big house and you go to different rooms and mm -hmm. you meet different people who just tell you their stories and then you move on to the next room. Right. 
Um, and sometimes they're connected and then the seven, uh, you know, and everything inside, they're not necessarily, mm -hmm. they're very um, separate. But I think of actually the people and everything inside as being um, maybe two generations from the folks in Creek Crack. And, yeah. and, I, and I was very happy to have traveled, you know, to first of all, to have had the opportunity to travel that distance mm -hmm. just as a writer you know, and to have seen the, a community emerge, not just in, in act, you know, in real life, mm. you know, a community that had gone through the AIDS uh, epidemic of which, you know, Haitians were the only ones identified by nationality of being high risk of had, you know, to the point where they'd had to have a march, you know, on the Brooklyn Bridge in, right. in 1990 that my parents who were, you know, who would not have gone out for anything, you know, went to that mm. march with everybody in their church mm. and to just have like, then to have had that moment of, you know, the first uh, democratically elected president of Haiti mm -hmm. and the coups that followed. And then to just see the community travel through all these moments, right? And now to just be in a place where certain things are taken for granted, you know, one thing is for example, kids in New York in the, you know, in the eighties would say they were Jamaican. Yes. Jamaica right. was sort of like the chosen identity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it mm -hmm. was Jamaican and Bahamian. Yes. You know, and so, and some of them actually had a very interesting experience of having come from Haiti. Their parents were from the Bahamas. And when they, you know, when they came from the Bahamas to the States, mm -hmm. then they already spoke English, but mm. then there are others who are just right from Haiti who would say they were Jamaican. Jamaican still, right. And so, and so, but to have gone through like, and now to seeing like, you know, this is Haitian Heritage Month and all the kids, you know, if this, they were in person school, you say they would wear their, their, their flags, mm -hmm. their, you know, and so to have seen that progression. So I, I feel like I was, there's so many things that are, absolutely taken for granted and everything inside that was like that you don't even have to state are you a big music fan i am i'm like a an average music fan okay. but this, this book has a lot of music it does um yeah and i hadn't real i didn't realize it until like until after the fact like there's you know the haitian folks on latibonito mm -hmm. and latibonito yeah you know, and then there's the nina simone mm -hmm. there's like and then there's charles mingus and seven yes. stories so and then i yeah after a while i was like oh there's a lot of music in this mm -hmm. uh, so that's like that's another common <laughs> common thread right but what i did i mean when i um i think i listened to the music i listened and that happens to other stories I, I've written. Like I, when I, I wrote a story last year that's set in New York during um, COVID called mm -hmm. One Thing that was oh, published yes. in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And so that has Nina Simone. And so I was like, so I listen to music once that music is relevant to the story. Like once okay. the music in the story, I almost have it in a loop. Mm. You know, even like I was writing a nonfiction piece and I mentioned this Manu Shalman song about carnival and I was mm -hmm. like listening to that on a loop. Like, mm -hmm. I, so, but I can't listen to, and I'm always trying to discourage my girls. I think younger people are programmed to have like multiple sounds happening, but I can't, um, 
listen to music while I'm writing because I'm trying so hard to focus. Right. But once the song is part of the story, I like I can listen to it endlessly. Like okay. then it just becomes part of the flow of the words. For sure. So the, so the Shaw Mang Charles Mangus, the Haitian fight song, like mm -hmm. I had that in the background, like throughout all the writing and editing of the story. Once that was like, once that had been mm -hmm. embedded, embedded in a scene in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is another uh, Jamaican connection. So mm -hmm. I've been writing. Uh, the, there's a show in town right now mm -hmm. of a of a sculptor in called Michael Richards. Mm -hmm. who is, uh, his mother was from Costa Rica, his father was Jamaican, mm -hmm. he was born in New York, but grew up in Jamaica. Okay. And he's, uh, he died in the World Trade Center during 9-11. And, but throughout his whole, most of his art is centered on flight. And, yeah. and one of his most, you know, famous paintings um, you can go have a look on the internet. It's called um, Tar Baby mm -hmm. versus St. Sebastian. And it's a, a cast of his own body oh. in gold with airplanes piercing through him. Yeah. Oh. So he, so he ends up dying in the World Trade Center in 9-11. But so I've been writing about him and, and I've been, um, and that's actually been one of my, pandemic projects I've ended up writing about a lot of artists but hmm. him I wrote about him in Create Dangerously and one of the things now in writing about him he has a show across town in North Miami and they're doing a catalog and I'm writing for the catalog and one of the things is to get his the interpretation of his work past like he was this guy who did this kind of sculpture and died hmm. in 9-11 but to dig in and one of he and he left behind a mixtape he did a, a a kind of and the and the exhibition you know um he let there's music okay like rhythm yeah yes, yes. <laughs> all right okay now so, i see you I so i and then so he had a mixtape mm. and while i was writing about him i've just been listening to his mixtape like what? it was so he has he has you know Shabarangs, he has like the old school, like really? Bam, he has like all the versions of Bam Bam, and he wow. like so the stuff he was. He, he even has a guy from um, Panama, El General, who's reggaeton, like the, yes, the El General, right, right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that's I've been listening to that, like as a you know, as part of the of the writing, and of course I've been. Um, watching small acts and like the music in that you just kind of like sends you down like you want to see yes. where that comes from you know lovers rock and right all of right that. So, oh my but i'm not like i'm not like one of the and i've loved that when i go to people's houses and mm -hmm. they get you like a glass of wine and they play their like like soundtrack to yes. their part. like i'm not that person <laughs> but but it would be nice to be you know yes. I, I i sort of like i feel like i end up listening to music in the in the path of my work yes and, and church music to calm me down okay <laughs> that's really good oh wow i mean but music really does set the mood and it really can open up the mind or focus the mind in different kinds of ways, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Like them bleach, mm -hmm. like I'm listening to that, I'm like, 
that's revolutionary, man. Oh, yeah. That's like them have to them Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you know. So it's um, it was really wonderful to kind of like revisit like mm -hmm. a visual artist through that, like through music. Sound, right. Um, last question. This is a last question about exile, right? And so in everything inside, you reference Cindy Jimenez's. Um, poem titled, Could You Talk to Us About Your Country's Historical Memory, um, where you say being born is the first, or where she says being born is the first exile. How does that quote kind of help to summarize or, or stamp you? Yeah. I mean, I know there are people who don't like sort of to generalize the idea of exile. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, that was such a powerful statement when I read it. it, it especially, you know, when I came across it, I met Cindy on a plane, we were like, so she I was on a plane, and she walked past me and she kind of stared down at me. And whenever people stare down at me in public, I and seem to recognize me, I say to my girls, they're readers. You know? <laughs> Ooh, so I, <laughs> readers. So I said to them, I was like, she's a reader. And then she came back and it and, sounds and, like a zombie term or some sort yeah, of zombie apocalypse. No, There's a reader over there. No, but it's a, I feel like it's an honorific for me. Yes, no, it's great. It's, like, great. it's kind of like that person is such a reader that yeah. they recognize me a in writer. my pajamas with my yes. headscarf on. <laughs> um, and so then she came back and, and gave me her book. And then I started reading it on the flight. And that came across that I thought, oh, I have to put, like, I have to ask mm. the question. To put that in my book because I feel like people will interpret exile differently. You know, of course, there's like that hard exile where you can never go back, never. and 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 so and then there there'll be like this next generation who will, without diminishing that harshness, right, of not being able to go back to a dictatorship, at the same time will feel a sense of you know detachment or having been plucked from a certain place mm -hmm. and and then i feel like the way she, the way she characterizes it makes us all pop, you know potential exiles yeah and and i was and that was at a time you know when i was reading this it was at a time where there was such a an active stigmatization mm. right and uh, of scapegoating of immigrants and exiles and how many refugees would can we let in and literally what we're seeing now, you know, and, and what I what I think is really the future of migration, right? Mm. Because just the way the world is going with climate and and you know and increase you know this um, inequality is that there are going to be thousands and thousands of people. At that time, you know, it was in Europe where people they're still and they were right. dying on these boats. The boats were getting turned around and and you know and people were rushing borders and and so, and I felt like this was a thing that, that sort of, you know, people tend to suddenly when they see a child in a cage or they see, they saw that child on the beach, suddenly that's when it hits them, right? Mm -hmm. Because I guess it comes closer to their own humanity where they think like, that could be my child. And I think what she was saying here about displacement and exile and is that it could be all of us. Mm right and so it's just being born is the first day it's like that that's that your first detachment and right. it's the first not the only one not the only right. 
first the first yeah and in, in, a, in a way this COVID-19 experience is creating another kind of exile as people continue to say you know let's do x y or z so that we can return to normal no, whatever no, that this is. is exile there's not mm -hmm. we can't go back to whatever that thing was before so I just want to thank you for your time and generosity today. Well, thank you. This was a lovely, really. wonderful chatting with you. Thank this you was for fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.